Our summaries this week contain two cases on criminal law, both from the Arkansas Court of Appeals. In Buckley v. State, 2023, ARC App 330, the Arkansas Court of Appeals affirmed convictions of residential burglary with accomplice liability in a case where defendant entered the victim's home with others and a murder followed. The jury found defendant not guilty of the homicide, but convicted of residential burglary and accomplice liability. There were many arguments on appeal, but one of principal interest in this case was whether a Brady violation required reversal and a new trial. Following the conviction in this case, defense counsel learned there was a non-disclosed written statement that was exculpatory. In the trial, a witness testified defendant was present, but in an earlier statement, she did not list him. Judge Gruber explained, quote, On November 2, 2021, appellant filed a post-trial motion to set aside the verdict and or dismiss due to a violation of Giglio Brady. In the motion, appellant's counsel stated that on or about October 5, counsel sent a request via electronic correspondence to the Malvern Police Department under the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act of 1967, Art Code and Sections 25, 19, 101 at SEC. Counsel claimed that the response showed that the state failed to disclose several items of discovery, most importantly, Oliver's handwritten statement in which she did not identify appellant as one of the suspects who entered her home. Appellant did not attach Oliver's purportedly withheld statement or any other evidence of or related to the allegedly withheld materials. The state filed a request that appellant file the specific pieces of evidence as exhibits that appellant alleges was not disclosed to them. On December 28, 2021, appellant filed an amended motion to set aside the verdict and or dismiss due to violation of Giglio Brady or, alternatively, motion for reconsideration. Despite an attached itemized list of evidence obtained through the FOIA request created by appellant's counsel, the specific evidence asserted as the basis for appellant's Brady violation was not provided. On December 29, 2021, the state moved to strike appellant's amended motion, arguing that appellant's first motion, which was filed November 2, but followed by the amended sentencing order filed on November 24, was deemed denied on December 27. End of quote. The majority opinion reasoned the post-judgment challenge was not preserved, but if it was, defendant failed to show the secreted evidence would cause a different result. A footnote explained, quote, To the extent appellant raised the issue for the first time in his motions for post-trial relief, the objection is untimely. In order to preserve an issue for appeal, it must be presented to the circuit court at the earliest opportunity, and a motion for a new trial cannot be used as an avenue to raise new allegations of error that have not been raised and preserved at trial. End of quote. Looking to the substantive arguments, however, the opinion added, quote, In order to prove that the failure to provide Oliver's alleged written statement constituted a Brady violation, appellate must establish three elements. One, the evidence at issue must be favorable to him, either because it is exculpatory or because it can be used to impeach a witness. Two, the evidence must have been suppressed by the state, willfully or even inadvertently. Three, and some prejudice must have ensued. 
When considering a Brady violation, we look at the significance of the evidence that was alleged to have been withheld weighed against the totality of the evidence to determine if the evidence at issue would have been such as to have prevented rendition of the judgment had the evidence been available at the time of trial. The question is not whether the defendant would more likely than not have received a different verdict with the evidence, but whether in its absence he received a fair trial, understood as a trial resulting in a verdict worthy of confidence. When the state fails to provide information, the burden is on the defendant to show that the omission was sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome of the trial. Even if this court were to hold that appellant met the first two Brady elements, appellant has failed to establish the third element, the prejudice necessary to fulfill the materiality analysis inquiry. We cannot say that there is a reasonable probability that the results of appellant's trial would have been different had a written statement by Oliver been disclosed. End of quote. In addressing the dissent, the majority wrote, quote, The dissent concludes that Oliver's testimony at trial placing appellant inside the house was one of the key evidentiary pieces that placed him at the scene with the shooter. We disagree. Looking at the entirety of the evidence would hold that there was substantial evidence placing appellant at the scene as an accomplice, even excluding Oliver's testimony. Appellant certainly could have used a conflicting written statement to further impeach Oliver during her testimony. However, she had already acknowledged having made a prior inconsistent statement, successfully impeaching her own credibility. Thus, as in Maiden, Supra, Appellant was not denied the opportunity to call Oliver's veracity into question and to challenge her credibility before the jury. Furthermore, Oliver's testimony that Appellant was inside the house was not the only evidence supporting Appellant's conviction as an accomplice to residential burglary. Appellant has not established that the allegedly undisclosed evidence would have altered the outcome of the trial. Thus, he failed to demonstrate that the evidence was material and its suppression prejudicial in order to meet the third component of a Brady violation. End of quote. The Court of Appeals also wrote that impeachment cured any error. Quote, Appellant was able to question Oliver at length and point out her prior inconsistent statements, stating that she did not identify Appellant as being inside the house in writing and that she did not place him inside the house in her testimony in the Hughes trial. Oliver's testimony was clear that she thought she had identified Appellant as being inside the house only verbally when speaking with officers, but not in a written statement. Oliver admitted that she was giving inconsistent testimony. End of quote. A dissent written by Judge Murphy and joined in by Judges Abramson and Verdon stated, quote, Following Oliver's testimony, during which she was extensively cross-examined about her statement, Buckley's counsel asked for a bench conference concerning Brady because counsel had never received anything from the state to indicate that would be her statement at trial. The prosecutor stated that everything I have in my notes says that she did not identify Dale Buckley in that living room. Defense counsel asserted a Brady violation, and a recess was taken for the state to review its files. After recess, nothing further was developed on the record on the matter, but after the sentencing's order was entered, Buckley filed a motion to set aside the verdict alleging the state withheld evidence in violation of Brady. In that motion, Buckley explained that, after trial, he sent a letter to the Malvern Police Department pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act requesting the investigative file for Gearhart's murder. 
In response, he received Oliver's handwritten statement in which she did not identify Buckley as one of the men inside her house. Buckley argued that Oliver's written statement to police contradicted her testimony at trial, where she stated that she told police that Buckley was inside her house at the time of the murder. This statement, according to Buckley, could have been used to impeach Oliver, and the state improperly failed to disclose it. The motion was deemed denied. This record indicates that it was only after the FOI requested information was provided to the defense from the police that Buckley was able to know with certainty that a Brady issue actually existed. A post-trial motion is a perfectly acceptable vehicle to raise a Brady issue when suppressed evidence favorable to the accused is uncovered after the trial. End of quote. Looking to the argument substantively, the minority reasoned, quote, The remedy for the suppression of Brady material is a new trial where the suppressed evidence would have been material to the defendant's claim of innocence. The question is not whether the defendant would more likely than not have received a different verdict with the evidence, but whether in its absence he received a fair trial, that is, a trial resulting in a verdict worthy of confidence. Buckley was prejudiced because he did not have the benefit of the statement to work with in developing the point to the jury, and to hold, as the majority would, that Buckley's cross-examination of Oliver somehow fixed the error would be to punish Buckley for having good lawyers and reward the state despite its wrongdoing. At a minimum, Buckley was unable to thoroughly impeach a key witness, and it cast a different light on the remaining evidence tying him to the crime. Furthermore, the jury found Buckley not guilty of the murder charges, even with the benefit of the theory of accomplice liability, underscoring how very close this case was to those weighing the evidence. Given this record, I believe there is a very real chance that had the Brady material been available to the defense, the outcome concerning the burglary charge may have been different. End of quote. End of decision. In Franklin v. State, 2023, ARC App 318, the Arkansas Court of Appeals reversed convictions of driving while intoxicated and refusing testing because of allowance of inadmissible portable breath test, or PBT, evidence. The court erred when it denied defendants' mistrial motion. Judge Verdon explained, quote, On the night of November 17, 2020, Scott County Deputy Sheriff James Oswald responded to a report of a person passed out in a vehicle that was parked on Brush Creek Road near Parks, Arkansas. Deputy Oswald found Franklin sound asleep in the driver's seat. The vehicle's headlights were on and its engine was still running. Deputy Oswald tried to wake the sleeping driver, but Franklin was unresponsive, so the deputy reached through the open window and turned off the vehicle's ignition. When he did, Franklin began to stir. Deputy Oswald testified that Franklin's eyes were red and watery, pretty bloodshot, his breath smelled of intoxicants, his speech was slurred, and he was wobbly when he got out of the vehicle. Franklin admitting having drunk several beers at deer camp earlier that day. Deputy Oswald asked Franklin to submit to a field sobriety test, but Franklin said, I'm just not doing that. Deputy Oswald told Franklin that he was arresting him on suspicion of DWI and placed him in the back of the patrol vehicle. Incident to the arrest, Deputy Oswald searched Franklin's vehicle and found an empty beer can on the passenger side floorboard, a 30-pack case of beer that had been opened, and more cans of beer in an ice chest. At the detention center, Deputy Oswald asked Franklin to submit to a chemical test, but he refused.
Deputy Oswald then issued citations to Franklin for DWI and refusal to submit. At the jury trial, Deputy Oswald testified as to why he believed Franklin was intoxicated, which included the deputy's observations at the scene set forth above, followed by Franklin's refusal to take any field sobriety test or to take a chemical chemical test offered at the detention center. During what could be described as a vigorous cross-examination, defense counsel asked Deputy Oswald the following questions. What I'm wondering about, how do we go from a suspicion to a firm conviction that caused you to write the ticket because Franklin didn't take the test? Now, what happened at the station that changed your suspicion to a firm conviction, enough that you wrote him a citation for DWI? Deputy Oswald said, I mean, it's not admissible, but the portable breath test was .17. End of quote. In a bench trial, defense counsel declined a cautionary instruction. The trial continued. Quote, the state then called Omar Gonzalez, an employee with the city of Waldron, who had been called to assist the sheriff's office in responding to the parked vehicle on Brush Creek Road. Gonzalez was asked what happened at the scene, and he said, When I arrived, Deputy Oswald advised me of what was going on. He had Mr. Franklin in the back of the truck, and he asked me if I could administer a PBT, which I did. Another bench conference convened, and the prosecutor advised the trial court that he had told both witnesses not to get into that, meaning the PBT. The trial court remarked that the PBT was already before the jury, so that's not an issue. Defense counsel again moved for a mistrial and explained that a cautionary instruction would only draw attention to the inadmissible testimony. Defense counsel's motion for a mistrial was denied and the trial resumed. Before retiring to deliberate, the trial court read to the jury the following instruction. Reese Franklin is charged with the offense of driving while intoxicated. To sustain this charge, the state must prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Reese Franklin, while intoxicated, operated or was in actual physical control of a motor vehicle, or operated or was in actual physical control of a motor vehicle while the alcohol concentration in his breath or blood was one-eighth of one percent, point oh eight percent, or more by weight of alcohol in his blood as determined by a chemical test of his blood, urine, or breath. End of quote. As to the state's argument, quote, we disagree with the state's position that defense counsel basically invited the error by opening the door to the inadmissible testimony because the deputy's answer was not responsive to defense counsel's question, which was essentially whether something had occurred on the ride to or at the detention center. While an admonition to the jury may in certain circumstances cure a prejudicial statement, Zachary v. State, 358, Arc 174, it could not unring the bell that had been rung here. The damage was already done. Moreover, after Deputy Oswald had revealed the PBD results to the jury, that prejudicial testimony was compounded by Gonzalez's subsequent mention of the PBT, bringing the PBT results to the jury's attention once again. Neither reference to the PBT was inadvertent, and defense counsel's strategic decision to not have the jury caution does not preclude our review of the error. End of quote. The error was not harmless in this case. Quote, we cannot imagine a more patently inflammatory statement in a DWI trial than one in which a member of law enforcement has testified that the defendant registered over the legal limit on a PBT 
and when the jury has been specifically instructed that the defendant is guilty if his blood alcohol was 0.08% or more. The testimony by Deputy Oswald that Franklin had registered 0.17% on the PBT, followed by Gonzalez's reference to the PBT, determined the outcome here. The jury predictably found Franklin guilty of DWI. A mistrial was warranted, and a cautionary instruction to the jury would have been useless after hearing such prejudicial testimony. End of quote. In dissent, Chief Judge Harrison, who was joined by Judge Brown, wrote, quote, Applying a harmless error analysis, Franklin's conviction should be affirmed because it's sufficiently supported by evidence apart from the PBT point. I don't in principle disagree with the majority's decision to recognize a bright-line rule that admitting a PBT result is reversible error as a matter of law so that no harmless error analysis need even be made to see if a conviction could be scrubbed of the taint. That direct rule can be easily applied in the trial and appellate courts in almost every case in which the issue might predictably arise. But such a per se rule runs contrary to our Supreme Court's current view. Although I grant the harmless error rule in DWI cases isn't deeply developed by either appellate court, still we must give the harmless error analysis a chance, so to speak, until the Supreme Court holds that a new trial is always required when 1. PBT evidence is wrongly made known to the jury and 2. a motion for mistrial has been properly made. End of quote. Another dissent by Judge Kleppenbach and joined by Judge Gladden added there were multiple indicators of intoxication. So any error was harmless and defense counsel opened the door. Quote, Moreover, the problem in this case could have been alleviated by an immediate curative instruction to the jury or by subsequently refusing to instruct the jury that DWI can be committed by one in control of a vehicle while having a BAC of .08 or more. However, defense counsel refused the offer of a curative instruction and never objected to inclusion of a BAC result in the guilt-faced jury instructions defining the offense of DWI. Notably, there was no testimony before the jury explaining the acronym PBT or the number .17. Additionally, the second officer's statement that he administered the PBT was spontaneous, not brought on by the prosecutor, and no test result was mentioned. End of quote. End of decision.